Two and a Half Admins, episode 77. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is Modern INET D on FreeBSD. Yeah, uh, in this article we talk about INET D, which is the ye olde internet super server, a program that listens on the network and starts other programs when a connection comes in. And we talk about how you might be able to use that uh, for interesting things now that we're in this age of trying to make the smallest possible container to run an application. And, you know, if you're running a lot of them, you don't need a bunch of daemons idling all the time. It might be an interesting solution. The neat thing about INETD is it makes it absolutely trivial to just allow any user on the network that can access the box to run a command that you've configured to be run from INETD. The terrifying thing about INETD is it makes it absolutely trivial for anybody who can reach the box to run this arbitrary command you've configured. So you want to be really careful what you've configured INETD to run for whoever touches it. Yeah, like I remember back in the day, we wrote one to be a Adobe Flash policy server. So if you wanted Flash to be allowed to connect to random ports, like to be an IRC client, you had to listen on the specific port for a request for the specific URL and then return this like XML policy document saying what they were allowed to do so that people couldn't just write a Flash game that was turned everybody's machine into a botnet. And so we wrote one that used INETD to just cat a file out to the socket every time you connected. You could literally just tie a command like, you know, echo ballsack to INETD. And anytime somebody connects, it says ballsack to them. <laughs> and then hangs up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> right. Well, link in the show notes as usual. All right. Let's talk about the biggest news from the last couple of weeks. And that is Spotify, the Joe Rogan experience, and the boomer musicians who are boycotting Spotify. Basically good on everybody in that sentence, except for Spotify and Joe Rogan, honestly. We're kind of breaking a little bit loose of the normal focus of this show on tech stuff to talk about this, but it's actual freedom of speech, which is not necessarily always what the folks who clamor about freedom of speech really like much. There are people who don't want to be associated with Joe Rogan, the first and foremost of those to really make a big stink about it and put his money where his mouth was is uh, Neil Young, who said, uh, you can have Joe Rogan or you can have me. You can't have both. And predictably, Spotify, who had paid $100 million to have Joe Rogan, said, all right, see ya. And Neil left, which is awesome. That is what free speech is. That's the freedom to associate with who you do or do not want to. And uh, Neil, thankfully, had enough clout with his own record label, who truly is calling the shots over whether his catalog is available on Spotify or not. And uh, Warner said, yeah, we're pulling it. So he's gone. Uh, Since he left, a couple of other musicians have followed suit. Um, Joni Mitchell did. And I believe Crosby, Stills, and Nash did also, uh, either today or yesterday. And Spotify's total subscriber base is down 3.5% as of a few days ago. Since Neil made his departure, it got a lot of people all riled up. It made enough of an impact that Spotify actually temporarily killed their live support service because they were just getting drowned in people complaining, saying, you know, we we don't like being forced to support Joe Rogan if we want access to music, which is really what it comes down to. So this is why I wanted to talk about it. And this does tie in with more of the tech stuff that we normally talk about. This is a real fork in the road that Spotify was faced with. Are they a music streaming company or are they a podcast company? And they have clearly stated with this that they are a podcast company that also streams a bit of music. I mean, they stated that when they 
bought Rogan for $100 million. But now they've really cemented this fact. There's no doubt in anyone's mind anymore that they care more about podcasts than they do about music. And that, to me, is worrying and disturbing. Because people talk about how Apple had this huge monopoly of a podcast, and then Spotify came along and, and took that. But not really. Apple had control over the index, but all they ever did really was point you to people's RSS feeds. And RSS is this amazing open standard that we are all using, but Spotify doesn't want that. They don't want it to be open. They don't want an open standard. They want it to be in their own walled garden and they want you to listen to podcasts through their platform, through their app. And they've bought podcasts like Rogan's one, that's the most high-profile one, but they've bought a bunch of others as well, and also podcasting companies and advertising companies to make this huge juggernaut that is running roughshod over open podcasting standards. And I don't like it. Spotify doesn't care about podcasts. They just think that podcasts are where they can sell better ads or they can integrate their ad tech better than they can in the middle of a short song. And that the eyeballs or ears of podcast listeners are worth more to advertisers than people just listening to music. Because, you know, when you're listening to music, especially on Spotify, if you're on the move or something, how much are you actually listening to every word that comes out versus a podcast where you're probably actually following the conversation rather than just, you know, the music's on while you're doing something else. And so basically what Spotify is doing is, is selling people your attention. Uh, and they think they can sell your attention for more money if it's via a podcast than via some music you're listening to. The word Alan is groping for here is engagement. And it's the same word that drove YouTube's big push to the, you know, the, the up next algorithm, you know, the AI that tries to figure out how to keep you not only on YouTube, but actually watching things beginning to end and then eagerly looking for the next one. That's the big thing that Spotify wants to sell. And Alan is entirely correct. They just they see podcasts as a better vehicle to drive long term focus and engagement than than music in the background does. Well, there's also the factor that they have to pay for music, whereas they don't have to pay for podcasts that they've already bought, like Rogan. Every time you stream a song, they pay the artist a fraction of a penny, and that adds up. It does add up, but it takes quite some time before you pay an artist the $100 million they spent to get Joe Rogan, and that $100 million doesn't mean they've got Joe until he dies and they never have to pay him again. Mm. I don't know all the details of his contract. I don't think they're public, but you know, it, it's still for a certain amount of time, and I think it's probably unrealistic to expect that even a typical mega artist on the music side is getting anything like that $100 million payout from Spotify. What Spotify was buying was not the Joe Rogan podcast. What they wanted was the Joe Rogan following of people that watched that podcast and would listen to other things as well and not come to Spotify just for the one thing and then leave. Is that you're going to bring a whole bunch of people and help us bootstrap our numbers and, and get things going up. But the other thing that I don't like about Spotify is the ad tech. They have this platform, Megaphone, that they bought. And how that works is... They track you using very similar ad tech that has ruined the web. And then when you go to download a podcast episode, it dynamically inserts ads based on your profile. So let's say you're a male age 24 to 34 looking for a credit card, then you get a credit card ad. If only it were actually that effective. <laughs> yeah. 
If you're a male ages 18 to 34 and you're looking for a credit card, enjoy your brain pill ad. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the goal though, right? And that's what they're aiming towards. And it is, it's just all of the stuff that we know is bad about ad tech on the web. They are trying to and already have put into podcasting rather than the classic model of like the ads we have on this show and have had. That's individual deals that have been done, read out by the host, in this case me, and that is based on a general interest. This episode's sponsored by Linode, as you'll hear in a bit, and that's because Linode thinks that there's a good chance that people listening to a podcast about being a sysadmin might want to use their services. That's as far as the tracking goes. Whereas with this ad tech, it's way deeper than that and way just scarier and more dystopian. Well, and it's also why they're trying to kill off RSS and so on, right? There's like, oh, your RSS reader downloads from uh, the, the MP3 file and we've customized it, but your RSS reader doesn't keep the same cookies as your web browser does and doesn't know what other podcasts you were listening to necessarily in the same to the same degree. And that's why they're trying to push their player tech, which would not only give them more information about where you were listening to the podcast and when you paused it and if you listened all the way to the end and help them solve the problem of podcast metrics. So it's like, yeah, we have this many downloads, but how many people are downloading the episode and never listening to it or only listen to this part of it and then, you know, always turn off as soon as we get to free consulting or whatever. And they want all that data about how people are listening to the podcast so that they can claim that they'll sell better, sell better ads, although we've never actually seen ads be that effective yet. Ultimately, Spotify wants the same thing that is driving pretty much every large business and has been for decades now. They want everything to be cookie cutter, plug and play, just slot it all together with the minimum effort and it just works. So you've got automatically generated interstitial ads that go into any podcast, regardless of the topic. You just chuck them in and the creator doesn't have to worry about the advertising and they don't have to worry much about the content. And, you know, it can be different for users or whatever, but it all just gets managed algorithmically and it all just goes. And we see this in every industry. I mean, the entire reason the Java programming language, which frankly is horrible, got as popular as it did, was because it promised the ability to turn developers into those same like cookie cutter, just plug anyone into a box. There are no rock stars because everything gets done by interchangeable devs and interchangeable small teams. And it all has to fit together with these tightly defined interfaces. And the whole reason for that, again, with this object oriented stuff and the very tightly defined scope on variables that you pass from one function to the next is you don't hire people to work on this enormous coding project. You hire mediocre devs, or if they're better than that, great, but who cares, to work on lots and lots of little tiny projects that just slot together. So that's what Spotify is doing with, you know, it, its ad tracking platform. And it's the same thing that YouTube did with its. And to be fair, I'm going to be playing a lot of devil's advocate here, which doesn't mean that I love these things. It just means it, somebody's got to talk about the other side. When you look at YouTube, when you look at the absolute explosion of content creation there, that is a lot of the reason why. For all of YouTube's ills, for all the ways that it screws over content creators in any number of ways, finds ways not to pay them, yada, 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 it does make it possible for somebody who just has a camera, a microphone, and the ability to feed themselves while they build a following, you can just get in front of the camera and do your thing, and YouTube will find a way to monetize it and give you a cut. 
That's a lot of what Spotify is looking to do here. It absolutely comes with all those downsides that Joe was just talking about. But again, they're not new. We already lived through this with YouTube. Now, here's the devil's advocate part that I've been waiting to get to, and I really hate having to be the one to bring it up. You could, if you were feeling particularly perverse, say that as bad as this Spotify thing is, it's a good thing that it cropped up because they're not the first ones to start trying to gobble up the podcast market this way. This was already happening to a large degree by a company that is now calling itself iHeartRadio that may be better known to some of you by its former name, Clear Channel. Now, if you don't recall Clear Channel Communications, it's the reason why sometime in the 1990s, you went from having lots of distinct radio stations, different in every market with highly individual programming and personalities and lots of interesting stuff to like Steve FM and like, you know, uh, Dude FM and Joe FM and John FM in every city pretending to be a unique thing, pretending to be this amazing thing. There's no disc jockey. It's just music. Isn't it great? Well, it's just one company running all these things, doing all the programming for central location, cutting out all the people they possibly can and just turned into a money machine and it murdered content creation. Now, I will say that so far I have found iHeartRadio's approach to podcasts a lot less heavy handed than Spotify's, but I've never been able to entirely forget that's freaking clear channel either. So it's possible that having two juggernauts popping up and competing now may end up better in the long term for us than if it would just iHeartRadio and Spotify stayed out of it. But what do I do as someone who makes a living out of this? Do I keep fighting the good fight and stay totally independent and do ad deals that don't involve a bunch of tracking? Or do I just give into it, sign up for Megaphone and just start serving people automated, inserted ads based on what Spotify slash Megaphone thinks they might like? Well, it's like anything else, Joe. Ultimately, you're a craftsman, right? You are creating an artisanal bespoke product. You're using your expertise as both an audio engineer and, you know, personality manager and, you know, like dealing with me and Alan or over on the late night Linux side or the late night Linux after dark side, you know, your cast of personalities there, uh, selling the advertising, figuring out the right advertising to try to sell, putting it all together into a pleasing whole. I mean, this is literally the definition of what an artisanal product is. And the answer is, is that going to be massively, hugely profitable compared to cookie cutter stuff? Very rarely, um, sometimes on a really small scale, like when it is pretty much just Joe Ressington Enterprises, you might be able to make more money that way than you can doing the other. It will be more difficult. And doing it this way, obviously, and this is, I hope, very obviously not any kind of a dig. I approve thoroughly. It's also as much about your ideology and your commitment to it as anything else. And as long as you feel strongly that the web should be decentralized and there shouldn't be any one person controlling everything and, you know, you should have the, you pick what ads go in and there's not horrible tracking and yada, yada, yada. Well, you do that thing to advance your vision of the future. And if there's enough of you and enough of people like you, you shape what the future is. Whereas on the other hand, you know, if you're Abe Simpson, old man yells at cloud.jpg, well, then it stops when you stop. But in the meantime, you're doing what you believe in and you're creating the product that you want to create. And that's a good thing. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, 
It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com 25A. We started having a discussion after we recorded last time, and I said, no, hang on, this should go on air. And this is about understanding what a file system is, what a directory structure is, folder structure, whatever, and how increasingly, it seems, young people don't understand, they don't have a concept of a file system because they've grown up with mobile-first devices and everything is searchable and every application has like a camera roll or, you know, it, it just presents you the files. They don't understand what files and folders or a directory structure is. There's an article on The Verge from September 2021 that talks about how professors in universities are seeing this increasingly, that as the new generation comes through, they just don't understand this stuff. And you pushed back on me, Jim, I think, and said that it's kind of always been this way. I think that you kind of came of age in the midst of a bubble and you're watching it pop and you don't realize that there was a before time either. Oh, no, I do. I do because I look at my parents and they have no concept, like literally no concept of it. And then I do. And then I see my niece and my nephew and they have no concept of it. So I accept that I was in a bubble. Let me get on with it then and describe why there's a bubble. So you start out Prior to the bubble, nobody understands files and folders. They get very confused. They talk about saving documents in Word and, you know, just don't get the concept. And you can't seem to drum it into their heads because they predate universal computers being everywhere, right? Now you get to your bubble. Your bubble is where computers become universal in every household. Every kid is growing up with a computer at the very least very accessible in school and most likely at home with them. This is how I grew up, but I grew up that way a generation early. Nobody else was in the 70s and and early 80s. So now you're in your bubble because computers have become universal, but they're still primitive, right? You've got to interact with the operating system. You've got to know where you put your stuff because you don't have a freaking neural network that's, you know, contemplating natural language searches to try to, you know, figure out where all your crap is. So by necessity, these kids who all have access to computers, but they're relatively primitive, have to learn how things work because the computer can't meet them halfway. So what's happening now is the bubble pops as, like you said, you know, you get to, and it goes beyond just the ability to natural search. And a lot of it also is the interfaces themselves trying to abstract that away and remove that consideration from the users. Everything gets simplified. Everything goes from traditional desktop and laptop style, you know, computing to mobiles. You know, you've got a phone, maybe you've got a tablet and your tablet really is just a bigger, shinier phone when it comes down to it. And it tries to hide all of that away from you. You, know, you don't, you don't want to think about files and folders and whatnot. So that's why this bubble pops now. You've still got the universal computing, but you don't have the universal need to learn the nuts and bolts of it. Now we're getting back to something that the same concept you're talking about with most people not understanding hierarchical organization of things, 
this predates computers and you have a very similar split at home. You got a junk drawer, right? Everybody's got a junk drawer. You got a couple of random screwdrivers in there, rubber bands, a pile of paper clips, some batteries, whatever. You probably also have some really well organized, you know, shelves and stacks of stuff. And even if you're not a computer person, right? You got the junk drawer somewhere with stuff you don't care much about, but I don't know, maybe you're into, I seem to be the car analogy guy, so I'm just going to go with it. Maybe you're a shade tree mechanic and you've got your neatly organized, you know, toolbox with shelves and whatever in the garage. Maybe you like cooking. Your kitchen is a work of art. You've calculated the best possible way to arrange the plates to the spatulas to the whatever with the least amount of turning as you cook your food. These are things you care about and you've learned how to organize well and learned some degree of the concepts of organizing. Most people don't care about computers that much and don't want to care about computers that much. Even in the absence of that of the natural search, they're going to prefer to treat it like a junk drawer rather than treating it like carefully curated filing cabinets at, you know, IBM back when it was a typewriter company or what have you. Yeah. Like how many kids nowadays would understand the reference of like a card catalog in a library? Mine would. To know that this, this, this would have the thing and it tells you where to go to find this information. Like trying to explain how a file system works to somebody doesn't even make sense anymore. Oddly enough, even in South Carolina schools, they are still teaching the Dewey Decimal System. With that said, even in my generation, most kids brain flushed the details of it the minute they didn't have to regurgitate it for a quiz. And I suspect that's even more true now. I imagine I could recall enough of it to use it, but not to explain it to somebody. I think I could actually explain it better than I could use it because like I totally get the concepts and how it organizes the books. But in actual practice, I don't do enough maneuvering through the stacks of any given library to really need or want to know much more than, okay, you know, this section is for that and that section is for the other. And, you know, then I get in there and it's organized alphabetically by author. Good enough. I can find what I'm looking for. I'm definitely from inside the bubble for that and go like extra anal in a direction. You open up the the work directory on the, my main drive here and it's every one of the directories is prefixed with a two digit number so that they I control the sort order rather than it being alphabetical. And it goes up by tens and that way I can stick numbers in the middle if I need to or whatever and everything's exactly where it's supposed to be in the right order and I can jump to it and the tab complete is faster and if I'm using the, the GUI to click things or whatever, it's always exactly in the same order. And if I add something new, it doesn't change the order of everything because, you know, the letter D comes after the letter C or whatever. And I understand other people don't want to do that, but things have to be organized so I can find them. Part of that's coming from, you know, back when I was doing this stuff, if you want to search your whole computer to find the file called Foo, it could take hours to walk through all the files and see, is, is are you named this? Are you named? It was like literally looking at every book and then throwing them aside if you were thinking about the way you would look through a library to do it. And now we're getting almost a worse version of what Jim described in the beginning where, you know, you ask somebody where they saved that file they just made. It's like, well, I saved it in Word or WordPerfect or whatever it would have been at the time. Now we're getting to the point where on phones, especially on Apple, where they're doing this storage segregation to make sure that, you know, this app doesn't have access to your files from over here. Literally, the files are saved in that application. You have to use the share button to move a file from one application to another. They don't all have access to the global file system of the phone. You know, that kind of thing we used to tease people about is, is literally becoming the way it actually works now. It's because people want junk drawers. Junk drawers are easy. And there's only going to be so many people that care deeply enough about any particular given thing to be professional and precise and meticulous about it. And 
I don't have to tell anybody listening to this show that that goes for any profession and includes people who are paid to do the thing. Not all of them care about organizing properly. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. So Martin writes to us, I would like to know how you guys handle updates. Do you do automatic updates? Yes. (laughs) If not, do you have specific time slots where you take care of them? After all, updates can break things. And do you handle security updates different from normal ones? So it depends on the context. Like on my machines and the stuff at my house, it's mostly automatic updates, like Jim said, because I just, otherwise it'll get put off forever and that'll be bad. For some of the production stuff at work, we have a hundred of identical machines or whatever. We build an update and, and ship it, you know, on purpose. And generally the security updates are the reason we do it. We don't generally update for no reason. It's because, you know, this version of the OS isn't going to be supported anymore. Let's get to the new one. Or here's a security update for OpenSSL. Let's get that out everywhere. But mostly automatic updates are usually the right answer. Yeah. Some of our listeners haven't even been using computers for long enough to remember the time when it genuinely might make more sense to avoid updates because they were more likely to break your computer than fix it. That time was before absolutely everybody had the internet and was trying to break into everybody's everything in incredibly advanced ways constantly. When security patches come down the pike, you need those. And the odds of you getting owned in some way because you didn't apply a security upgrade are far higher than the odds, which are non-zero, admittedly, of upgrades breaking your computer. I actually generally make a policy in most cases of not trying to find super special snowflake hours that are only when the update happens and yada, yada, yada. I want them getting applied automatically immediately when they come in. We have reached the point where major operating system and distribution vendors, whether you're talking Canonical with Ubuntu or whether you're talking about the Debian group with Debian or Microsoft with Windows or whoever, they're not very likely to break your stuff in the middle of a day with an upgrade. And at least in the case of like, you know, Linux or BSD distributions, if they are that unprofessional, I'd kind of rather just immediately find out about it and be able to evaluate that and move on because it's going to have other bad implications that go along with it. Basically, it's not hard to QA updates, to deliver updates, to apply updates. I don't want to get in the middle of that. This is why I use the Ubuntu LTS on all my systems, whether it's with a GUI or not. And I actually do differentiate. If it hasn't got a GUI, if it's headless, then I'm using unattended upgrades. I'll occasionally SSH in and see if there's any other updates because I don't differentiate between security updates and other updates. If you're on an Ubuntu LTS, just update the lot as far as I'm concerned. But on my machines with a GUI, my desktop and my laptops, I don't have automatic updates because that's annoying because when I turn it on, I can't do a manual update because I have aliased up to uh, sudo update update and uh, dist upgrade and um, all the rest of it. And the last thing is uh, cat slash var slash run slash reboot dash required. So I just type up, it does all the updates and tells me whether I need to reboot. So by contrast, here's what I do on my desktops. They get unattended upgrades installed just like the servers do. 
Because the thing is, unless you actually change the configuration, unattended upgrades only apply security upgrades. It doesn't apply feature upgrades. There's not usually a whole lot of distinction on that on a headless box that's got, you know, like a professional-ish kind of job, like, oh, I'm just a web server or a file server or whatever. But once you start getting into the desktop stuff, there is definitely a big breakdown. And I sometimes do encounter exactly the annoyance you're talking about, Joe, where I felt like, you know, I wanted to run apt for something and, ah, the automatic upgrade, you know, process is running in the background. But one of two things is happening. It's either going to release almost immediately because I just had incredibly good timing to catch it while it was, you know, doing its equivalent of an apt update or it's installing upgrades. And what kind of upgrades is it installing? Security upgrades specifically. So if it's already doing that, I want to wait until it's done. I can wait until the security upgrades are downloaded, installed, and applied. And, you know, then I can apt install Inkscape or, you know, whatever the heck it is I'm looking to do. But the difference here is that you leave your machine on 24-7, whereas I am either using my computer or it's turned off. And so I turn it on, it boots really quickly with an NVMe drive, I quickly update it, and then I use it. I mean, unattended upgrades does the same thing either way. You don't have to have your machine on 24-7 for unattended upgrades to work. And again, you know, when it's running, if it's running, it is doing a very important thing, and I don't want to get in its way. On the server side, the thing I do is architect things so that one machine being down doesn't take anything down, so we don't need to schedule downtime necessarily. And I want these updates to happen during business hours while I'm awake and thinking and able to deal with it. I don't want updates happening during on-call time where I'm going to get interrupted to go fix something. I want this stuff to all happen while I'm awake and while I want to do work. But other than that, for the production stuff, it's making sure that that machine doing its update and rebooting doesn't require us not to be making money at that minute or whatever. Possibly worth noting over here on the Linux side, we talk about the unattended upgrades package. That's the Debian package, which of course goes down from there to Ubuntu and Ubuntu variants. Unattended upgrades runs in the background and applies security upgrades for you. Now, by default, it's just going to kind of do that all the time and do it when it finds them. But if you are in a larger scale, more professional environment, we say, hey, we want to you know, set aside exactly the time that updates get applied when it's going to be maximally convenient for our engineers you absolutely can set the schedule of when unattended upgrades will actually apply its updates and and all that good stuff. You can get it exactly down to the, the granularity that you want it. And I think it's very important to point out again that we're talking about keeping things automated. My biggest complaint with what Joe is saying he did and create the one weird bash script that does like all the things for him every time when he types up and he's happy, that's great, but he still actually has to type up and do it. And if he forgets to do that or doesn't type in the P and doesn't notice, just hits enter and think, oh, I'm fine and go, whatever, there's this potential here for breakage and for the thing not happening. And I I don't want that. I don't want me to have to type up. I want my upgrades to get installed when they need to get installed. And it's 2022. I shouldn't have to do that manually. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.